Welcome back, everybody, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitchell, as always. Lucas, we've got a good one this week. That is certainly one way to put it. I mean, we've had a lot of good seven-game classics, and we've had three weeks in a row of dealing with the drama that was the Oakland Athletics dynasty. Now, they're involved in postseason baseball this time around, but we are not going to feature them as part of this podcast. No, we are not. And in fact, as a final act of drama for the A's catfish hunter left after the 1974 season to the Yankees via free agency, the A's win the American League West, but they are defeated in the ALCS, swept in fact, by the Boston Red Sox. So we have a new American League champion. They are being paced by a very, very good rookie by the name of Fred Lynn, who has a 331 average, hits 21 home runs, has 105 RBIs, in fact, becomes the first player to win both the MVP and Rookie of the Year awards in the same season. And you have a few guys with 300-plus averages. Carl Yastrzemski, who's kind of on the downside of his career at this point. Cecil Cooper and current Red Sox legend and future White Sox legend Carlton Pudge Fisk. They also have Jim Rice, but his season ends prematurely with a wrist injury, so we won't be talking about him, unfortunately. Also have a nice mix of veterans and young players. Dwight Evans, Rick Burleson... Denny Doyle, Rico Petroselli from the Impossible Dream from the last Red Sox pennant winner. And you have a solid pitching staff in Rick Wise, who won 19 games. Luis Tiant, 18 wins. Bill Lee won 17 games. So you have quite a squad in Beantown. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a team that posted a 398 ERA as a group, but there's a lot of names that you know and who are really good, and you've got the nice mix of the veteran talent with the good young blood of the aforementioned Fred Lynn, who won the MVP award this year. And, I mean, this is a team that certainly has what it takes, and given that they dethroned the three-time defending champs in pretty dominant fashion, they've got a pretty good shot at winning this thing, but the team they're facing has been here before. They have been here before, but they are older, they are more mature, they are hungrier, and they are a lot better. The Cincinnati Reds Big Red Machine that went 108 and 54, pretty much an all-star team. I've talked about this before, but at Great American Ballpark, there's a mosaic to this team, along with the first ever Cincinnati Reds team, which is why they credit as the first professional baseball club. I mean, just look at this lineup. You had Joe Morgan, who won the MVP with a 327 average, drove in 94. Johnny Bench drove in 110 runs. Pete Rose, 210 hits, 47 doubles. Tony Perez, 109 RBIs. Ken Griffey hits 305. Dave Concepcion hit 274. George Foster at 323 home runs. They lead the NL in runs scored 840. Stolen bases 168. Saves 50. And fielding percentage 984. So, without even talking about the pitching staff, this is one scary lineup. Oh, that's abjectly terrifying, and I'm sure there has to be a little bit of nerves in Boston of having to deal with this group. Now, granted, this is a team that has shown up in a couple of World Series, but have losses to the Orioles in 70 and to the A's in 72. And here, now they're going up against this Boston team. And let's get to the pitching here a little bit. It's a lot of the names that we're familiar with. 
Jack Billingham won 15 games for this group, was tied for the team lead along with Don Gullett and Gary Nolan. Fred Norman winning 12 games for this group. They posted a team ERA of 337. Didn't strike out as many batters as the Red Sox did, but I mean, on the whole, this is still a pretty good group for the Reds of a lot of guys that we've seen before. And let us get into this World Series. Appropriately, the World Series film is called Super Series, and you will find out why as we go into this. We go to Game 1 at Fenway Park in Boston. The first pitch is thrown out by U.S. Treasury Secretary William Simon, and Tiant is the Game 1 starter for the Red Sox. Tiant, being a Cuban, is known to chomp cigars. And, of course, being from Cuba, nobody really knows how old he is. In fact, one of my books says he was between ages 35 and Social Security. It's funny how some baseball writers will take some of these similes, metaphors, and apply them as such. They also refer to Tiant as being pot-bellied. Six foot 180 was his playing weight, which is kind of where I'm at right now, so I can't really say anything. But what's even better for Tiant is that his father is in the stands, and he had not seen him in 14 years. I don't think we need to go into details about why that is, them being from Cuba. But if you're going to see your son for the first time in that long, seeing him pitch game one of the World Series, I'd say it's a pretty good way to uh, break that drought. That is a good reunion. And if you know anything about how this podcast has gone over our several episodes, it's that you know, you pitch this scene in a writer's room in Hollywood when they're not striking justifiably. Anyway, you pitch this scene and you would get laughed out of the room because it's too unrealistic. And yet, Luis Tiant is about to put on a clinic. Absolutely. After Joe Morgan singles with one out in the fourth, really the first threats that he's had, if you can even call it that, Tiant tries picking him off a few times. But first base umpire Nick Collisey calls a buck, but Morgan is stranded at second. But I want to talk about this just for a moment because one of my books talks about the delivery that Tiant has. He seems to have a lot of different windups, all of them unusual. Carlton Fisk said he jiggles his glove, he throws back his head, shakes his leg, twists around, and all of a sudden, here comes the ball. Sparky Anderson said to the media before this series they weathered whether Tiant's windup might be a buck. And, of course, there was a balk, like I just mentioned, but as it turns out, inconsequential. Yastrzemski is able to make a diving catch in short left on a Concepcion fly in the 7th. And then in the bottom of the 7th, Tiant, who had one at bat July 12th against the Rangers, which is a flyout, he singles to lead off the 7th. Lucas? Hitting pitchers forever. And then Evans reaches on a sack bunt, attempts to move up Tiad, who subsequently advances on back-to-back singles by Doyle and Yastrzemski, but not being able to hit a whole lot because now we're in the air of the designated hitter, which at this point is not in the World Series. He forgets to touch home, so he has to go back and touch it. The Red Sox end up sending 10 men to the plate in the seventh inning. They score six runs on five hits. The Red Sox strike first in this series with a victory by a score of 6-0. And in fact, this is the first time that we see a complete game in the World Series. Tiant is obviously the one to throw this complete game. 
It's the first time since Steve Blass closed out the Orioles in Game 7 of the 1971 series for the Pirates. Don Gullett had started the game for the Reds, and he got into the 7th without any issues before giving up that uh-oh single to Tion. And then Dwight Evans attempting to lay down the sacrifice bunt. They tried to get Tion at 2nd. The throw was late. And then the back-to-back singles by Doyle and Yastrzemski. Yastrzemski knocking Tion in. The aforementioned he needs to go back and make sure that he actually steps on home plate. At that point... Clay Carroll comes in, he faces one batter and immediately walks Carlton Fisk on six pitches, so, you know, at least the full count there. But that brings in the second run, and Sparky Anderson goes with the quick hook, he says that's enough. Will McEnany comes in, gets Fred Lynn to strike out swinging at the very least, but then gives up back-to-back singles to Petroselli and Rick Burleson. Cecil Cooper with a sacrifice fly closes out the scoring in the seventh. We go to game two, which is a rainy day, and this is actually one day before the Navy's 200th birthday, so this being America's pastime, they have a pregame salute to the Navy, so thank you men and women for your service over the past 200, almost 50 years at the time we're recording this. And the Reds score their first round of the series when Perez hits into a fielder's choice in the fourth. Morgan is caught stealing, and then Lynn makes a diving catch on a giant bench fly to center to end the sixth. And Petroselli has an RBI single with two outs in the sixth. The run was unearned because of a Concepcion error at short earlier in the inning. And rain eventually does delay the game for 27 minutes, but it does not bother Bill Lee, the Red Sox starter, because he comes back out after that rain delay. And he had a reputation for being a free spirit. In fact, maybe the most famous free spirit in the game at that point. But he often got himself into trouble with that because he outraged the people of Boston by suggesting that they were bigots because they opposed integration by school busing. So probably not the best thing for him to say. But he had a high arching blooper pitch, which was his best pitch. And batter's mouths were just frothing, waiting to hit this thing. But he usually got them out. And Lee is able to continue this, but then he gives up a Johnny Bench double to lead off the ninth, and that is it for him. He comes out in favor of Dick Drago, who saved 15 games during the course of the season. So you're thinking, okay, we're going to go up 2 nothing once Drago shuts this down, right? Except Concepcion drives in bench for the tying run on an infield single, of all things, up the middle. And then Concepcion steals second, and he scores the go-ahead run on a Griffey double. So instead of the Red Sox going up 2 to nothing on their home turf, we are going to Cincinnati tied at 1 after the Reds have a comfort-behind victory 3-2. to two. You gotta watch out for that big red machine, because this late rally thing is going to become a theme... But not really just for them in this series, because we have some more great games on tap as we shift the scene to Riverfront Stadium. Carlton Fisk obviously trying to get something going for his team. Leads off the second with the first of six home runs of the game. And as the first home run of the series, we get home runs between the fourth and fifth innings from Bench Concepcion and Cesar Geronimo. And then we have Rose Tripling in the fifth. And that is enough for Rick Wise to come out of the game. Jim Burton comes in to relieve him. Rose also scores on a sack fly by Morgan. Bernie Carbo, who also has some history with the Reds, he comes on in a pinch hit role for Reggie Cleveland, who also came on in relief. He hits a solo home run to left with two outs of the seventh. 
that causes McEnany to relieve Clay Carroll. Petroselli singles with one out in the ninth. So McEnany comes out of the game. Raleigh Eastwick, the Reds closer during the season with 22 saves, comes into the game. Evans promptly hits the game-tying two-run homer to left. So we have a ball game. And then we get to not the most memorable moment of the series, but according to the World Series film, the most talked about moment. So Drammel singles to lead off the 10th. And Eastwick is due up next, so Sparky Anderson naturally has to send up a pinch hitter. Ed Armbrister of the Bahamas is the man to step up to the plate. So he bunts and possibly interferes with Carlton Fisk as he's fielding the ball. And Fisk consequently throws the ball wildly to second, and both runners move up into scoring position. And the Red Sox are just furious at this. Larry Barnett's the home plate umpire ruled that there was no interference. The man obviously at the forefront of the argument is Red Sox manager Daryl Johnson. But nonetheless, the Red Sox lose the argument. The call is final. So the Reds have runners on second and third now. Lucas, this is a moment that I wasn't really sure existed. If you've seen the movie Fever Pitch... You'll know that in the scene where Drew Barrymore's character is first learning about the curse of the Bambino, after the curse itself is explained to her, they list all these examples of bad Red Sox luck. And I knew that they had mentioned something costing the Red Sox this particular series. But this being Game 3, this particular play obviously did not cost them the series, at least on this night. But you might remember they're saying Armbrister runs the Fisk and costs us the series. That is obviously a little bit of an exaggeration, but nonetheless, a very controversial moment. And not only that, this is another example of the home plate area in Cincinnati being the site of a controversial call in the World Series. It seems like this is happening every year the World Series comes to Riverfront Stadium. Yeah, no, I mean, we've had Sparky Anderson coming out and arguing, and, you know, this time he's the beneficiary of this. If you go back and you watch the plate, it's weird because it's a bunt right in front of the plate, and it's weird because Armbrister, in theory, has the right-of-way to be able to try to get to first, but, you know, you've also got the right-of-way of trying to go and field that bunt, and it's just they happen to run into each other, and then you get into the whole thing of with Rule 6.01 on interference and obstruction and collisions with the catcher and things of that nature, and... Given that this is kind of one of those weird things of the ball happening to go exactly where both guys needed to be at the exact same time, I feel like letting it play out was probably the correct call. I mean, there's so many clauses within Rule 6.01 about what to do if this happens versus what to do if that happens, and... I think intent was certainly a part of it, but it's also kind of the reasonable expectations. And in a situation like that, where both guys literally have to go where the ball is, and obviously neither guy intending to get in their way, I feel like a no call was kind of the right call. Well, here's the other thing to consider. I hate playing conspiracy theorist on something like this, but... I was messaging an older Red Sox fan that I've come to know online over the years... And I asked him about this play because he's old enough to remember this series. And he is under the impression that this game is played in Boston instead of Cincinnati, that interference would, in fact, have been called. 
there's any argument for that? I certainly do. So when I went back to grad school, was working on a master's, I did kind of my final thesis on the concept of home field advantage. And when I was doing this, I was kind of looking like there's no way that there's been academic studies done about stuff like this. Turns out there are. And there are three commonly cited factors behind home field advantage as a general rule in sports. Familiarity with the venue was one of them. I can't remember what another one of them was off the top of my head, but the third one was support from the crowd. And that comes in just general cheering. But I think there was also kind of a general consensus in looking through a bunch of studies done in various places where when crowds are present and you have kind of a close call, sometimes there is a little bit of a bias towards the home crowd because of that very factor. So I'm not going to say that it absolutely wouldn't have happened, but I'm not willing to rule it out either. So the result of this play, at least immediately, is that Jim Willoughby comes out of the game, Roger Moret comes in, which, by the way, the moments that they talk about Roger Moret in fever pitch, about him going catatonic, that happened in his career, but he was already gone for the Red Sox at that point. But again, just goes to show you how they wanted to portray Red Sox fans in the movie. But anyway, Morgan ultimately drives in the winning run, and the Reds have a controversial victory by a score of 6-5 to five in 10. As Fisk said, it's a damn shame to lose a ball game like that. One call from the umpire can change the complexion of the whole series. And we will get more instances like that in future episodes. But in any event, we will see how it plays out as it relates to this particular instance as we go on in this episode. You mentioned here that whole play kind of overshadows what was a pretty fun one. We mentioned the multiple home runs, the Red Sox getting homers from Fisk, Carbo, and Dwight Evans. We mentioned the big one that Evans hit. The Reds getting home runs from Bench, Concepcion, and Geronimo in this game as Cincinnati holding serve at home in Game 3. So we go to Game 4. Rose leads off with a single and he promptly scores a double by Griffey, who is then thrown out on 8-6-5 relay, trying to go for a triple. And then Morgan walks and later scores on a bench double. Laying off the fourth, Fisk and Lynn have back-to-back singles. Then they both score on a triple by Evans, who promptly scores on Burleson double. And that is it for Red starting pitcher Fred Norman. Pedro Borbon comes in to relieve him. We've talked about him in previous episodes. And Tiant, who is starting for the Red Sox, is Bourbon's first batter. He singles, and that raises his series average to 500 and moves Evans to third. I know it's not Ken Holtzman, Lucas, but say it one more time. Hitting pitchers forever. And then Evans scores an error by Perez at first, and Tiant scores on a Yastrzemski RBI single. And then with two outs and no one on in the fourth and the bottom half, Foster reaches first on infield single and goes to second on a throwing error by Doyle. Concepcion doubles on a fly to short left center that three Red Sox fielders go for. So kind of into the Bermuda Triangle right there. And they couldn't get to. That scores Foster. Concepcion scores on a Geronimo triple. Then Geronimo singles to lead off the ninth and moves to second on a sack bunt by guess who? 
Armbrister. This time there's no interference. And Armbrister had again pitch hit for Eastwick, but no controversy here. Like I said, Rose walks to put the winning run on, but Griffey has a deep line out to Lynn on the warning track in center. So there's a good example of his MVP play right there. And Wargat pops out to first. And Tiant, who had been laboring, finishes the game, goes the distance, throws 163 pitches, which is unheard of, I would say, even in the dead ball era. But the Red Sox tie up the series 5-4 to four is the final score here. By the way, this is after throwing 100 pitches in his complete game 5 hitter in game 1, which is absolutely an absurd workload for Luis Tiant. So this is going to be quite a finish with this best of three. And we are just getting warmed up. So just take that for what you will. Riverfront Stadium has a record 56,393 in attendance for game five. Doyle triples and subsequently scores on Yastrzemski's sack fly in the first. But then Perez ties the game the fourth out of solo homer to left center. We have Don Gullett singling with two outs in the fifth and promptly scoring from first down, rolls double to left. Lucas Aid again. Hitting. Pitchers. Forever. And Gullett went 15-4 during the season despite being out from mid-June through mid-August because he had a broken thumb. So quite an effort for Gullett on both sides. Then Morgan walks to lead off the sixth. Takes off for second and Bench finds a hole on the right side after Doyle moves towards second. That puts runners at the corners. And Perez promptly hits a three-run homer to left center. Cleveland comes out of the game for Willoughby. Gullitz takes a two-hitter into the ninth inning, but Yastrzemski and Fisk have back-to-back -back singles with two outs, and they score a double by Lynn. So Eastwick relieves Gullitz to strike out Petroselli and end the game, and the Reds win this by a score of 6-2 going back to Boston. The two-homer game for Tony Perez, by the way, he had been in an 0-for-15 slump going into that, so heck of a way to break out of it. Yeah, I'd say so. And the Reds would have to wait a while for their first of two opportunities to clinch because it rains and it rains and it rains. In fact, we have to wait five days between games five and six. Game five was played on October 16th, and we have to wait until October 21st to play game six. Can you imagine this is the biggest moment of your life, and you have to wait this long to get back out there? And this is the first time the World Series has been postponed multiple days since game six was postponed three days in 1962. And you see a lot of film in the World Series film with the players just hanging out in the stands, just watching the field, and they're probably just like, okay, so this is what we're dealing with. I mean, there's really nothing else to do at this point, is you're tentatively going to play if the weather allows you to. And it's interesting, too, in the film of you've got Bowie Coon and the umpires are all out and inspecting the field and just going, no, we can't play on this. But if anything, like this is certainly helpful to Boston because, you know, we've mentioned Luis Tion has thrown 263 pitches in two starts in the World Series, the two games that the Red Sox have won. But because of this extended postponement from the rain, Tion has had a chance to get plenty of rest. And so he is on the bump. And that is after Duffy Lewis, an 87-year-old member of the Red Sox's 1915 World Series championship team, throws out the first pitch. 
And it looks like he's going to get some early support because Fred Lynn hits a throw and homer to right center in the first inning after back-to-back -back singles by Yastrzemski and Fisk, both with two outs. But it becomes apparent very soon that Tians does not have his best stuff despite the extra rest. I should mention that Sparky Anderson goes through a lot of pitchers in this game, and we'll get more into that as we go on here. Jack Billingham is pinch hit for by, guess who, Armbrister with one out in the fifth. He walks, he moves to third on a row single, and then he scores along with Rose on a Griffey triple to center. Lynn hits the wall hard, and the wall is unpadded at this point while he was going after this, and he had to be tended to by the training staff, and it looks like for a brief moment that Lynn might have to come out of this game as he's surrounded by the Red Sox training staff and his outfield mates. And somehow, some way, he's able to stay in this game. So, just showing the heart of a champion right there. You have to tip your hat to Fred Lynn. Oh, absolutely. Give him all the credit in the world for trying to gut this out. And we'll have to go through some numbers of before and after with this. But as it is, Johnny Bench ends up singling Griffey home two batters later. And it is a brand new ball game halfway through, tied at three. Griffey and Morgan then open the 7th with back-to-back -back singles and both score on a Foster double off the center field wall. And then Geronimo homers to right to lead off the 8th. And that causes Moretz to finally come in to relieve Tiad. And after Geronimo's home run, the Reds' win expectancy, according to baseball reference, increases to 93%. And in fact, the baseball writers are convinced that this series is over. So they take a vote and award World Series MVP to Raleigh Eastwick, which would make him the third reliever to win World Series MVP and the second straight one to do so after Raleigh Fingers did the previous year. And honestly, after Trammell hits that home run and the Reds win expectancy, even though that really wasn't a thing back then, increases that much. If I was the Ryers, I would probably think the same thing. This thing's over. Well, I don't blame them. I mean, I can kind of speak from experience in working basketball tournaments of, you know, we're looking at back when North Central was doing a tip-off tournament at the beginning of basketball seasons. We usually were hoping that the coaches would fill out ballots for all tournament team, and they typically weren't getting ballots back. And so it ended up falling on the sports information team, and I weaseled my way into getting a vote. And there was one year, I remember, our tournament MVP was basically, it was coming down to who was going to be the champion for the tournament, and representative from the winning team was going to get it. The losing team was going to get two participants on the all-tournament team. The winning team was going to get one plus the MVP. So that part was up in the air. We had our MVPs picked out at that point. But it was things had changed in the title game to the point of we had for... This was for North Central. So we had one player picked out for the all-tournament team, and then somebody else came in and had a monster championship game. And as we're kind of talking through getting ready to make the awards of like, should we go with this person? She had eight blocks in this game. Okay, yep, we're changing. Got it. Cool. So I can speak from experience of, yeah, I don't blame the writers at this point for going ahead and making their votes. And Raleigh Eastwick has done a really good job up to this point in fact, he is coming in in relief of Pedro Borbone. 
because Porbon allows the first two men in the bottom of the eighth to reach as Fred Lynn singles and Rico Petroselli draws a walk. So you've got first and second, nobody out, and Eastwick has to come in and clean up a mess. And Eastwick is the Reds' sixth pitcher of the game, so this is kind of a precursor to how the playoffs are now when it comes to the number of pitchers by each team. And he retires the first two batters he faces, so at the moment, the writers' decision to name him World Series MVP is looking justified. But then Bernie Carbo comes up to pinch hit former Reds, and he hits a three-run home run to dead center on a two-strike count to tie it. And as he's rounding third, Carbo says to Rose, don't you wish you were this strong? To which Rose says, isn't this what the World Series is about? Isn't this fun? So just when it seemed like Eastwick was going to take home some hardware, Carbo ruins it, and all of a sudden... We have a tie game. Fenway Park is up for grabs. Well, and there's a little bit of context to this. So we mentioned Carbo coming on to pinch hit for Moret. So Sparky Anderson at this point is, you know, he had made the move. We see the Boston move. He's debating here in his head now. So he's got Will McEnany ready to go so he can go lefty-lefty on this. But his concern was that if he does this, well, they're going to send Carbo back and bring on Juan Benitez to come on to pinch hit. So he ends up deciding to say, you know what, I'm going to stick with Eastwick on this. And we kind of undersell the at-bat a little bit too because Eastwick was making Carbo look pretty foolish early on, but Carbo is able to fight back, has kind of a little bit of an ugly foul-off swing to somehow stay alive is able to foul off a couple pitches before finally launching that three-run homer to center field to tie the game. And it looks like the Red Sox are going to walk this off in the ninth after Doyle walks and Yastrzemski singles to lead off. McEnany relieves Eastwick and intentionally walks Fisk to load the bases with nobody out. And obviously that is sound because Fisk's run is meaningless. And then Foster catches a fly ball at the left field line and... Doyle tries to score, even though it's a short fly ball, because you know the dimensions of Fenway Park are pretty short. Don Zimmer, who is the Red Sox's third base coach, yells, no, no, no. And Doyle mishears it as go, 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 or so he claimed. So what happens is Foster throws out Doyle trying to score the winning run, and then Petroselli subsequently grounds out to third to force extras. So... We have quite a game going on, and we're still not even close to being done here. Oh no, the best is still yet to come from this. And if you are at all familiar with World Series history and you know, wait a minute, Boston is involved, you're probably already aware, oh yeah, this is that game. But we'll get there. So, nothing happens in the 10th. And then to lead off the 11th, Rose is ruled to be hit by a pitch to lead off despite the protests of Fisk and Johnson to home plate umpire Satch Davidson. The replays are inconclusive, so, you know, what are you going to do? Griffey has a bunt that is fielded by Fisk who throws out Rose at second, so you cut down the runner in scoring position, so you still have a runner at first. And now let's talk about this play, shall we? Morgan launches what looks like a go-ahead two-run blast, but Evans has a catch reminiscent of Al John Fritos. Remember that years ago, Lucas. He sticks out his glove the last minute, and he grabs the ball. And at this point, Griffey is so far off of first that he's able to start a 9-3-6 relay to double Griffey off of there. So 
Talk about extremely bad luck if you're the Reds, but extremely good luck if you're the Red Sox. I mean, that's demoralizing right there if you're the Reds. It is. I mean, it's an incredible defensive play. So, I mean, on the one hand, like, I don't necessarily blame Griffey for taking off. And then the throw back into the infield was just so far offline. But it ultimately doesn't matter because Griffey was so far off. And so, you, as you mentioned, you get the double play and it's all a non-issue and we keep playing. And Kurt Gowdy, who's calling the game for NBC Radio, here's how he called that play. There's a long shot. Back goes Evans. Back, back, and what a grab. Evans made a grab and saved a home run on that one. And actually, Kirk Gowdy on NBC Radio, you know, he did every other game for TV, but he had some nice radio calls on the Carbo home run. He said, Carbo hits a high drive, deep center, home run. And then he still and then said, Bernie Carbo is his second home run in the series. The Red Sox have tied at 6-6. Six to six. And on the double play ball in the ninth inning, he said, It's caught by Foster. Here's the tag. Here's the throw. He's out. A double play. Foster throws him out. This has to be a thrill for him as well. Oh, absolutely. Especially given, as we've said, the best of this game is yet to come. And let's talk about the best of this game. The Reds' eighth pitcher of the game is a man by the name of Pat Darcy. And, in fact, Darcy came in during the 10th inning, retired the Red Sox in order, came into the 11th, retired the Red Sox in order. But by this point, he feels that he is starting to lose his zip on his fastball. And, in fact, as he is warming up, Bench looks over at Sparky Anderson and says, no chance. And Anderson would say years later they figured if Darcy got the ball inside to Fisk that there might be a problem. Meanwhile, on the other side, Fisk says to Lynn... Fisk is leading off the inning, and Lynn is on deck. I'm going to hit one off the wall. You drive me in. So he takes the first pitch for a ball, which is very typical. But what happens next is not typical. Darcy throws a ball that he sees soar over his right shoulder, and it's unknown whether it's going to stay fair and go out. But let's just say that Dick Stockton, who worked his only World Series ever in his long career on this, but deliver the call of a lifetime, there it goes, a long drive, if it stays fair, home run! And the image of Fisk waving that ball fair is iconic in baseball history to the point where one of my books has it as not one, but two full pages with no words to caption it because... Every baseball fan knows what this means. The image speaks for itself, and the hilarious part behind it is the only reason that we have this image of Carlton Fisk waving his arms is because allegedly the cameraman was supposed to follow the ball, but he got distracted by a nearby rat and ended up getting Fisk instead. And so purely by accident, we have one of the most iconic images in baseball history. And on the radio, Kurt Gowdy says, they're jamming out on the field. His teammates are waiting for him. And the Red Sox send the World Series into Game 7 with a dramatic 7-6 victory. And on the TV side, Dick Stockton says, in addition to, we will have a Game 7 in this 1975 World Series. Carlton Fisk had a lot of little boy in him right there, Joe. Joe being Joe Gargiola, his broadcast partner. 
and you have uh, moments that every boy dreams about who dreams of being a baseball player, hitting a dramatic home run like that in the World Series. And everybody agreed that this was a game to remember. As Fisk said afterward, I don't think I've ever gone through a more emotional game. And then he says on the World Series film, I think we show a lot of people how the game's supposed to be played. Oh, 100%. And just kind of some context into how this game is perceived even a couple decades later. On ESPN's Sports Century in 1999, they were ranking the greatest games of the 20th century. This game ranked number seven. Fisk also said, I was going to make sure I stepped on every little white thing out there, even if I just straight arm or kick somebody to do it. And this was a moment that prompted... Ron Fimwright of Sports Illustrated to write, The sixth game of the 1975 series will be the standard by which all future throwers must be measured. And even today, almost 50 years later, that still rings true. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the number of games that you can put in the same sentence as this one, it's a pretty short list. And I mean, we've covered a couple of them already on this podcast, and there are more that will absolutely fit the criteria as we continue. But this one is definitely on the short list of the greatest games of all time. And a little bit more about that shot of Fisk waving the ball fair. The rats that you just described was, quote unquote, a rat the size of a cat. And Lou Gerard was not wanting to provoke the rodent, so that's why he kept the camera on Fisk. And instead of turning it quickly to follow the fight of the ball as he normally would have, he did that. As a result, we have a moment that, as John Filippelli, the director of this broadcast, put it, a wonderful aberration that changed television. No one had ever thought of isolating an individual. I mean, you and I, Lucas, this is commonplace for us, seeing one player, especially when they're hitting a major home run, watching the ball. Jose Batista's bat flip is probably the best modern example of that. I mean, isolation on one player on an iconic moment in baseball history is commonplace now, but had not been done at this point. And coincidentally, this is the earliest World Series which all games are available in their entirety. And man, what's a moment to include on this package of games? Well, I mean, I feel like this is definitely the moment of, you know, obviously now we have the technology and all of the cameras that are in place. You go to a major league ballpark and there's just camera wells everywhere because you want to be able to capture the magical moments from all of these angles. And we didn't have that back then. Obviously, you know, you want to watch the motion of the pitch and track the ball as it's in the air. And by pure happenstance, you managed to get one of the greatest images in the history of baseball. And that just kind of prompts like, okay, I mean, this is something we need to think about in the future. And that is why you have moments like with the guys that you described. I don't know if we can top that with Game 7, but nonetheless, an identical crowd of 35,205 show up for Game 7. A record 75.98 million viewers watched this game on NBC. And Carbo walks with one out in the third and moves to third on a single by Doyle, who, by the way, hits safely in every game in this series. So good on him. And Yastrzemski drives in Carbo on RBI single. Fisk is intentionally walked to low the bases. Flynn subsequently strikes out. But Gullet subsequently walks Petroselli and Evans to bring in two more runs. 
and that is followed by a Burleson strikeout to end the inning, so limited damage there. Concepcion singles, and Griffey reaches on air by Doyle to begin the fifth, but Geronimo strikes out swinging, and Merv Redmond, whom we have talked about before, who was pinch-hitting for Gullet, he hits it to a double play, so not the best time for the Reds there. But that changes in the sixth when Rose singles to lead it off, and a later scores a two-run homer over the Green Monster by Perez, who hits another slow curveball by Lee. And then Griffey walks with one out. The seventh Lee is removed from the game because of a blister in his finger, so bad luck there. Moret comes into the game. Griffey later steals second and scores the tying run on RBI single by Rose. That's Rose's tenth hit of the series. And then with the game knotted up in the ninth inning, Burton comes in to try and hold the Reds at bay, but he allows a leadoff walk to Griffey, who advances to second on a sack bunt by Geronimo. Then Rose walks with two outs, and Morgan drives in Griffey with an RBI single on a Burton slider. The Red Sox are retired in order in the bomb of the ninth. And one of the most exciting World Series ever ends with the Reds winning 4-3. to they have won their first world championship since 1940. And that top of the ninth, there were certainly some decisions to be made with regards to this. So Daryl Johnson, the Red Sox manager, is talking with Burton kind of in the scenario of you have Rose coming up with Morgan on deck. And obviously if Rose gets on, it doesn't matter because he's not the winning run. It's Griffey at third. And so kind of the talk is you can pitch around him a little bit. Try and work the black was the terminology that gets picked up on the World Series film. And it's a matter of, you know, if you walk him, it's not the end of the world. Unfortunately, Joe Morgan did Joe Morgan things and put the Reds ahead. And McEnany goes fly out, ground out fly out to end what has been a phenomenal World Series as the Big Red Machine after coming short in 1970 and 1972 finally breaks through again. And a very close series. The Red Sox have 60 hits. The Reds have 59. The Red Sox have a 3.88 ERA. The Reds have 3.86 ERA. As Sparky Anderson said afterwards, we are the best team in baseball, but not by much. Yeah, no, and it's another rare instance, too, of you look at the numbers for this series, the Red Sox outscore the Reds 30-29, to but they lose the series. I mean, it's one of those little things just kind of happen, and the margin is so thin. Like you said, they were the best team, but not by much. And Pete Rose gets the World Series MVP that had previously been awarded to Eastwick. He has a 370 average, and I'm just glad that once in a very solid career, he was able to get that honor. A slash line for Rose of 370, 485, 481, so that's a 966 OPS. You mentioned the 10 hits. Those came in 27 at-bats. He scored three runs, drove in two, had a double and a triple, walked five times to just a single strikeout. And you mentioned he won the award over Raleigh Eastwick. And at the time that decision was made, it made sense because Eastwick was coming in, had an ERA for the series of zero up until giving up that home run to Carbo. So Eastwick pitches in five games in the series, goes 2-0, also records a save, has a 2.25 ERA for the series, uh, strikes out four batters and allows just six hits and three walks and eight innings. So still a solid number, and if not for that Carbo home run, 
I have zero issue in that instance with giving Eastwick World Series MVP honors. This would end up being Kurt Gowdy's final World Series they did play-by-play -play for because the head of NBC Sports, Carl Lindman, traveled to the series that Kurt Gowdy was filming, the American Sportsman, and told him that he was done calling World Series games. So I guess Kurt's ratings had slumped and Joe Garagiola was the pitch man for Chrysler, which... You know, obviously the sponsors were getting antsy, so even they wanted him, and he even had Commissioner Kuhn's support. So that is unfortunate, and for Kurt Gowdy's World Series broadcasting career, but a very nice career nonetheless. I mean, he narrated a bunch of the World Series films, and in fact, this particular World Series film was narrated by Garagiola, so obviously this was something that was in the works by the higher-ups. Garagiola did a good job with the World Series film and was very compelling, you know, good cinematography, good mix of audio with things and just a great resource for this episode on one of the best World Series of all time. Uh, you know, we mentioned kind of the ranking just of Game 6 itself. ESPN and a couple different sets of rankings. In 2003, they called it the second greatest World Series ever played, trailing only one that we will get to in a few months' time. And in 2020, ESPN's Sam Miller named it the best World Series ever. And I'm also kind of biased towards Garagiola because I'm a game show nerd and he was a panelist and later host of the game show to tell the truth. And the last person I want to talk about here is the man who served up Fisk's home run, Pat Darcy. Fisk, as we know, would go on to a Hall of Fame career, but Darcy's career flamed out very soon after this because he had he was spot in the rotation for the Reds in 1976, but they started struggling to the point where he was optioned to AAA and he never pitched in the majors again after he was optioned on June 16th of that year. And then he suffered from some shoulder problems, and he spent the next few years in the minor leagues, kind of in and out of baseball for a time. And he was finished by 1980. So it wasn't exactly because of this home run that Darcy's career didn't last very long after that, but still kind of sad to see what happened to him in the few years that happened after this home run nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, it's unfortunate that you're remembered for being on the wrong end of a moment like that, but it is a little jarring to go on to Pat Darcy's baseball reference page and see three seasons and that's it. And to look at it and go, his last season in the majors, he was only 26. I mean, just goes to show you how fleeting a major league career can be. But he really doesn't mind that he served this home run up at 12.34 a.m. during game six. As he said, you can't dwell on it. You have to move on from that moment, no matter how big it is. He got the championship out of it, you know, even though he ended up extending the series by an extra game, like he still contributed. He won 11 games for the 1975 Cincinnati Reds, and he deserves some credit for that. And with that, we will just move ahead to 1976. Look ahead briefly. The Reds are back. But, uh-oh, look who else is back. That team from the Bronx. Oh, no. I mean, I guess it's been a while, so fine. They can come back. Tune in next week to find out what happens. So for Lucas Bitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our 1975 episode, epic episode, 
of Then There Were Two, History of the World Series. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, because as of this moment, we refuse to call it by that other name that its owner is trying to impose on everybody, but that's all we're going to say. Be sure to subscribe as well. We'll see you next time.